welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Um, I, I would love to say that I <laughs> planned this uh, show this way, um, but but it just came out, it, and fortunately, in, in and it fortunately did so. Today, we're talking about breaking stigma of mental illness in the criminal justice system, and my guest is Elizabeth Kelly. Um, now, she had been planned to be my guest for, you know, I don't know, some number of weeks. And why I say this is um, incredibly coincidental or incredibly fortuitous is because today um, a jury just came through with a guilty verdict for the mother of Ethan Crumbly. Ethan Crumbly is um, the a young man who was a school shooter in Michigan. And um, he um, he is in jail. He he actually uh, declined a trial, and he uh, agreed to a, a plea deal of of um, life in prison, which is very unfortunate because I don't think that he was in sound mind um, at the time uh, that he made this decision. But in any case, uh, the the trial that ended today in a guilty verdict, four guilty verdicts actually, for um, Jennifer Crumbly, his mother, uh, was found her guilty of involuntary manslaughter. This is a landmark case. Um, she is there hasn't been a case a trial before where parents um, of a school shooter have been put on trial. And this was um, an amazing trial, um, an amazingly important trial, um, because because it, this will have repercussions for parents of school shooters um, to come, and hopefully there will be fewer school shooters because of this um, result of this verdict. Now. Um, Elizabeth Kelly had been invited to be a guest on today's show before I knew anything about the timing of the um, Ethan Crumbly case. Now, I just want to say before I introduce Elizabeth, I just want to say that um, the trial um, held special significance for me. Uh, beyond, of course, it was super interesting. It's a, a landmark case and so on. Um, and of course, <laughs> the fact that it came out with the right verdict, I have been on pins and needles for, um, well, for, I guess, at least a week, but certainly these last two days um, that the jury was out. And I, I, I was wanted it so much to come through as guilty, because if there is any mother who uh, neglected her child to the point of um, <laughs> allowing him, encouraging him. She, and, you know, it's like the saying, she did everything but put the gun in a hand in his hand. Well, actually, she did put the gun in his hand. So if any mother, this was like a perfect landmark case, because if any mother deserved to be found guilty, she did. Um, I just wanted to say, I was starting to say about how this uh, had special significance for me too. First of all, I do a lot of talking about school shooters and writing about school shooters and and talking about their profile and all of that. But more than that, 
um, this courthouse, the Oakland County Courthouse in Michigan. Um, that was the site of um, a landmark trial uh, that I was the defense psychiatrist for. It was the Jenny Jones talk show murder trial in the 90s. And I was there, testified at that courthouse, at that trial for a whole day. I was on the stand. And I was the defense psychiatrist for Jonathan Schmitz, who was the young man who was ambushed on the Jenny Jones talk show. Now, I'm not going to take too much time to talk about that, but um, but in any case, it uh, and I'm writing a book. I've been writing a book about it for a while now. <laughs> One of these days, I'm going to finish it, um, hopefully this year. Uh, the book is called Murder by TV, A Descent into Madness. And um, that trial was covered by Court TV. It was one of my first, it was in the 90s. So it was one of my first cases. It was certainly my first high profile case. And um, and because of that case, he was actually charged with first degree murder. Uh, he called 911 after he killed Scott Amador. It wasn't a, there wasn't a question who done it. And um but he had mental illness. And um, and so the my as a defense psychiatrist, I represented him. I talked about his whole life. I talked about, you know, how that he wasn't he he didn't have the um, uh, capacity to form the intent to kill at the time that he killed Scott. And so the jury ended up um, with a second degree um, verdict. And he is now out of jail. So it all, so it's very, I have fond, fond memories of, um, of the Oakland County Courthouse. In any case, um, so I was going to start and say, so Elizabeth Kelly, my guest, was, was slated to be on the show today before anything, uh, I knew anything about the Crumbly case, you know, happening today because but it's, it's perfect, you know, what she is going to talk about is perfect, uh, connects perfectly with this. Now, the show's, uh, today the show is called Breaking Stigma of Mental Illness in the Criminal Justice System. And, um, and she has lots of all kinds of interesting cases regarding mental illness and the criminals, criminal justice system. The criminal justice system is not particularly kind with people with mental illness. First, let me introduce her. Elizabeth Kelly is a criminal defense attorney with a nationwide practice focused on representing people with mental disabilities. She's the editor of uh, Representing People with Mental Disabilities, a Practical Guide for Criminal Defense Lawyers, similar title for Autism Spectrum, and similar for Dementia. These were all books published by the American Bar Association. Um, she is the editor of the American Bar Association's annual publication, The State of Criminal Justice. Wow, that sounds like a very important book to be the editor of, not to mention all of these other things that you do. So now I understand that um, that you weren't as obsessive compulsive as I was watching every uh, everything that happened in regard to the Crumbly case on Court TV. Um, but... I mean, I think, I mean, basically it's, it's, it's very, um, it's, it's a school shooter, first school shooter case where the parents were brought in and charged. Um, and the fascinating part of it is how, um, well, I mean, first of all, it brings up the big question of how, how responsible 
our parents for what their children do. That's the overall thing, um, which is why actually I was worried that the jury might not find her guilty because if there were parents on the jury and they were thinking to themselves, which was what the defense was, um, the defense attorney kept the theme of the defense was why should parents be, is it fair to ask parents to be responsible for everything that their children uh, do? Uh, you know, how, why, how can she be expected to be, um, you know, to, to have known that this was going to happen or to have done more, what more could she have done for her child and all of that. So I was worried that there would be parents on the, on the jury who would think, oh my God, I don't want to start, you know, if I vote that she's guilty, then that will make it that parents will be guilty. This is, you know, this will start a precedent. And, uh, and uh, am I a good enough parent? What if my child does something? So what I, I, Given whatever you know so far about this case, what do you think? Well, as you said, Dr. Carroll, I did not follow it nearly as tenaciously as, as you did. So I only know a fraction of, of what you do about this case. However, based on what I do know, I approach it from an entirely different angle. First of all, as a criminal defense lawyer, I don't... I don't wish prosecution on anyone. <laughs> that 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 being said, I respect the jury's verdict and there was certainly a message in that verdict. But beyond that, I I see a couple of different issues as important to explore. First of all, as you know, people with mental illness like this young man probably is, are not inherently violent. That is to say, if they are given the appropriate diagnosis with the appropriate medication and the appropriate counseling and other support services, they can manage their mental illness. And the, the second point I'd like to I'd like to stress is that as I understand, there were warning signs about this young man, warning signs that the school administration delivered to the parent. So unfortunately, what we see is a young man with probably a serious mental illness and also a young person who, like all young people, is still in the formative stages. So with or without a mental illness, youth in our country are still developing their sense of judgment, their sense of consequences, their, their, their sense of knowing right from wrong. So this, this young man committed a crime and that cannot be denied, but nonetheless, he, he was a victim of, of a couple of different factors, his youth as well as his, his mental illness, aside from the fact that as you, as you said, and, and the jury decided, the parents helped facilitate putting, putting the weapon in, in his hands. 
um, our, our young people today are in crisis. We know that because of the after effects of the pandemic. We know that because of the role social media and peer pressure plays. And we unfortunately are, are not equipped at this point in time to, to identify what they need and deliver for them, deliver to them what they need. And this, this case is a tragedy for all involved, including his mother. Well, you know, this was a particularly interesting case in terms of um, mental illness because most school shooters don't beg their parents for help. They keep it to themselves. They're embarrassed. Sure. They don't want people to think they're crazy. Um, they, you know, and he he was has been begging for help. <laughs> excuse me for years, um, and and she kept ignoring it, and in fact uh, making fun of it. And the father would say, like, "Buck up," you know. Um, now, and and if I could add, that is so different from. Many of my clients and their families, that is to say, it's the mother and the father who, who see the warning signs and who want to give their child help. And, and the child, for whatever reason, resists that, resists that help, whether it's because of stigma, whether it's because he or she lacks insight whether it's because he or she wants to avoid medication with all of the sidekick uh, side effects. So this is this is a very, very unusual situation, but none, nonetheless, a tragedy that has many educational moments. Yes, yes. Um, you know, she was out doing all kinds of things um, rather than paying attention to him. And you know, I, and, and of course, another teachable moment is that, as you were saying, is that, you know, the, he could have been stopped. I mean, that's the, the, the bottom line. If if he would have been brought to a, a mental health professional and if they would have consistently, you know, continued making sure he was getting help. Like the Park, um, Parkland. Parkland, yes, shooter. You know, he um, he, of course, showed signs of mental illness for years, too. And um, his mother would call the police and then the police would bring him some sometimes they would bring him to a hospital, but he wasn't being admitted to the hospital, which is a whole other aspect, of sure. it, which is a really big problem and increasing. You know, I did my psychiatry training at Bellevue, <laughs> NYU Bellevue. Oh. We didn't ask people, do you want to come in? <laughs> if we saw signs that they needed to be in, they're in. Don't want to hear about it. And And then I moved to California afterwards and um a lot of psychiatrists are very um afraid of getting sued if they admit somebody to the hospital or you know there, there's not that same uh new york you know bellevue attitude <laughs> very discouraging when i came here and found that because um yes that's what people need they i mean if he would if um the parkland shooter uh had been put had been hospitalized even just once you know, ch chances are that his whole um, trajectory would be changed. 
Well, and and you know a thousand times more about this than I do, but it's not just a single hospitalization. It's the aftercare. It's the continuous treatment. And, And particularly when we see young people in their late teens and early 20s, we, we need to instill within them the importance of continually managing their mental illness. It's like any, any physical condition. Um, you continually have to be vigilant. Right. It's like diabetes. It's like, you know, you, it's not one and done. You don't take, uh, and that's part of the problem with the mental health system. We can talk about that too. I'm sure that relates to, uh, Pretty much all your cases, right? The frustration of not really being able to get people the mental health, uh, mental health help they need. Exactly, exactly. And and um, I know we have to stop for a commercial break, so I don't want to leave us lead us down a path where we'll have to stop suddenly. But um, it's also the lack of understanding um, within the court system. Okay. Well, yes, we do have to take that break. My guest is Elizabeth Kelly. Um, We're going to be talking. She has all kinds of fascinating cases. They're really, um, you know, that is the the most fascinating part of the law, in my opinion. Of course, having become a forensic psychiatrist and expert witness, this is what, um, this is what intrigues me the most as well. So stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. 
all the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch, where we're talking today about breaking stigma of mental illness in the criminal justice system. And we have the person, the perfect person, to be talking about it as my guest, Elizabeth Kelly. Um, so I want to start out, Elizabeth, with by asking you about how you you have this this very unique. You have forged for yourself a very unique place. The the person who is um, trying to help the mentally ill in the criminal justice system. And um, how where how did you get there? Well, thank you for that question. I have devoted my practice to helping people with mental disabilities. And mental disabilities is my global term, not only for serious mental illness like bipolar disorders, schizophrenia, major depression, but also intellectual and developmental disabilities like autism spectrum disorders fetal alcohol spectrum disorders, or what we used to call mental retardation. It's that last category that that got me interested in this particular aspect of, of criminal defense. Many years ago, I was court appointed to represent a young man who had what we used to call mental retardation. Now we say an intellectual disability. And basically, he was goaded by his so-called friends to being a lookout, to be a lookout during a series of burglaries. And obviously, he did what he did, but not with the same sense of, of culpability that, if you will, your average criminal commits a crime. He had no idea what he was doing. He had no sense of the consequences. He had no intent of hurting anyone. He just wanted to belong. He just wanted friends. So I was was really moved by that case. And then in turn, his caseworkers started recommending me to other families who had a loved one with an intellectual disability. So I started representing lots of people with intellectual disabilities. And then I represented my first person with a dual diagnosis. That is to say, a mental illness as well as an intellectual disability. So in answer to your inevitable question, no, I have no background in psychiatry or psychology or medicine or sociology or anything related to that. Um, I I am largely self-taught. I was very lucky over the years to have some wonderful mental health experts working on my cases from whom I learned a good deal. I I read everything I could get my hands on. And most importantly, I just listened to my clients and I listened to their families. 
And I tried to find good options for them in a system which really doesn't have a lot of good options. Now, where was this? Where did you start off? I started practicing in Northeastern Ohio, but but um, I divide my time right now between New York City and Washington State, but I practice across the country. So now, did you ha- have anyone, maybe this is indiscreet question, but was there anyone in your own family with mental illness? Like, did, Was there some reason why you felt particularly touched by people with mental illness? Well, yeah, I, I, I do have a cousin uh, with an intellectual disability, but um, so I grew up with a special sense of sensitivity, but um, and and that has held me in very good stead. Uh-huh. So do you want to talk about some examples of your interesting case file? Well, all, all of my clients are are, are interesting. Um, I have represented people with autism spectrum disorder and bipolar disorder and schizophrenia and postpartum depression and fetal alcohol spectrum disorders. And many of my clients also have co-occurring substance use disorders. So yeah, yeah. All of, on the one hand, I think, just when you think you've heard everything, something new comes along. So many, many of my clients have the same the same stories of of struggle and um, and searching for solutions. But by the same token, there's always something very unique about them or their families or the circumstances of what they're charged with that that keeps this all interesting. So um, what about like, so you've been doing this now for how many years? I guess about 30. Well, well, this, um, I've been practicing law for upwards of 25 years. I really started focusing in on this particular niche um, maybe 15 years ago. And so what are some of the trends that you have been seeing? Well, I'm, I am seeing a greater recognition on the part of the criminal justice system that there need to be alternatives for people with mental disabilities. And if possible, we need to be diverting them out of the system because this is at bottom a public health issue. That being said, um, there there are more diversionary options like mental health courts, drug courts, uh, veterans courts, and all of that is is needed and important and, and vital for some people. But by the same token, those options are not nearly plentiful enough and they're not broad enough. Um, they, they often exclude people with repeat offenses or violent offenses or sexually oriented offenses. Um, there are certainly not enough options in the federal system. 
Um, there are situations where there are mandatory sentences that 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 the judges have have little discretion um that leave the judges with little discretion. So um I would I would like to see more options available for people with mental disabilities because at bottom those people need treatment and support, not punishment. Yes. Um and and if I could insert a growing area of of concern within the criminal justice system is the number of people with different kinds of dementia who are charged with crimes. Um, it's a byproduct of the fact that Americans are living longer. So as a, a result, there are more illnesses that come with living longer, including different kinds of dementia. Mm. And the, the traditional way that we have of handling people in the criminal justice system and even handling people with mental disabilities is completely unsuitable for that, <clears throat> excuse me, that population, beginning with the fact that if someone with dementia is found incompetent to proceed, they are not equipped for undergoing the period of restoration that courts require. Uh, the metaphor I use with families is once they've fallen off the cliff, there's, there's never what any way of bringing them back up. Certainly you can manage the symptoms and you can probably anticipate the, the, the decline in the cognitive skills, but you can never restore that, that population. And beyond that, um, you, you simply don't want to sentence someone with dementia to jail or worse yet prison because those facilities are are not in any way equipped to handle them and and those individuals are very very expensive to accommodate even on a very rudimentary level with inside a penal institution so what where do they go what have you been able to get for them well, sometimes what if if the if we're lucky enough and a family approaches me early, then maybe we can divert that person into an assisted living center with re, with a memory care unit with really really good security and and we can we can assure the court that um you know the client will not will not pose a danger to anyone in the future because he or she is getting the appropriate level of of supervision and by the way this individual is not competent to proceed and never will be competent yeah, to that's, proceed that's a, a new um an interesting and new situation 
because when they're if they're not competent, then yes, then they the idea is if it's schizophrenia, for example, the idea would be to try to give them treatment and get them to being competent. But with dementia, like you were saying, it just uh, it's off the cliff and continuing to go. Yeah, down. and and for some for some people with dementia, they they remain in one place for months, maybe years. But but their condition is certainly never going to improve. Huh. Tell us about some of the other um, some of the other cases. Um, well, I, re- I, I, yeah, and obviously I don't want to get into anything confidential, but I, uh, I represent a lot of people on the autism spectrum, in particular, a lot of, a lot of young men on the autism spectrum. Um, I should say that girls and women can be on the spectrum as well, but um, they are, they are usually not as readily diagnosed for a variety of different reasons, not the least of which is the fact that stereotypically, generally speaking, girls and women tend to mask their symptoms more readily than, than, than boys and men. Um, but, but beyond that, a number of the young men I have represented um, are if you will, rather high functioning. And I know in some circles that 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 term is 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 uh, not well liked. But but in some spheres, these young men are very talented. In fact, they're very they're very smart. They're very accomplished, but they also have all of the deficits that that put them squarely on the autism spectrum like difficulty with with communication difficulty with social uh, skills and um and such so many many young men on the autism spectrum are charged with different kinds of cyber crimes because it could very well be that because of their social isolation, the, the, their computer is their best friend, indeed their only friend. And they can either be vulnerable to, to uh, they can be victims of cybercrime, or they can engage in, in different types of cybercrime crimes, some of them sexually oriented, um, in part because they are in their late teens, early 20s, and they're just naturally curious anyway. Um, but they they maybe haven't had the educational tools. They um, haven't, they, they're very, very inexperienced and they get caught up in in situations where they commit a crime, and unfortunately, they don't have criminal intent. But the way that some of our laws are drafted, they're basically strict liability crimes. 
So it it becomes important to try and get a good team of mental health experts on board who can give an accurate diagnosis and then discuss whether or not this individual, if given the the appropriate type of accommodation and 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 educational tools will not reoffend. You know, are you finding that juries are are getting more or less um, sensitive or or um, compassionate towards? Well, well, in large part, it depends on what the charges are. But it's it's very, very important if, for instance, you have a client on the spectrum who is going to trial, that you have an expert who can explain the outward manifestations of, of uh, autism spectrum disorders to the court as well as to the jury. So if, for instance, your client laughs at an inappropriate moment, or has a completely flat affect during during gruesome testimony, or if your client has some strange bodily mannerisms, all of that can be explained to the jury. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, I think that there um, there seems to be an increase in people with autism um, altogether. I'm sure you've well, I think I think in part um, in our schools, our educators are are trained to spot the symptoms in a way that educators in the past were not. Um, and and it also used to be that for some people who we would now diagnose with autism spectrum disorders, they were just kind of like, kind of dismissed by family and friends as being eccentric or 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 different and and we didn't really have a label to put with um with that behavior and accordingly we couldn't accommodate them as we do now yes yes this is going to be an increasing issue i'm sure you've probably seen that all right. Well, unfortunately, we need to take another break. <laughs> um, this is all so interesting. We're talking today about breaking stigma of mental illness in the criminal justice system with the leader of that, um, attorney Elizabeth Kelly. So stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline 
And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Tune into the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch, where we're talking today about breaking stigma of mental illness in the criminal justice system. Um, my guest is Elizabeth Kelly. She is uh, the attorney extraordinaire who is fighting for these people with mental illness. Um, there are so many stories, you know, there's, I mean, so uh, another example um, is a story of um, a young man with, I'm trying to remember what he had, um, I th- it was either autism or schizophrenia. I don't know. But anyhow, his, his, you know, of course, like the story you were telling about when, when kids have some kind of mental illness, um, it is hard for them to make and keep friends. And so like the, you were talking about the young man with the lookout who was the lookout. Um, so of course, when friends, you know, when people in their class uh, include them in something, um, of course, they're eager to go, oh, you know, they want to be my friend. Um, well, and part of that, part of that is true for any young person. Um, they just want to fit in. But when you have the overlay of, of a mental disability, and in particular, an intellectual disability, or developmental disability, it, that desire to be to belong becomes even stronger. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And unfortunately, um, carry serious consequences. Yes. Yeah, so that's how they easily get, you know, dragged into uh, doing things that they don't really understand or wrong. Um, what during the break, um, I was telling Elizabeth about a case that I was involved in it was around 10 years ago, um, of a mother of an autistic girl, um, who had done everything for her daughter from the time she, she recognized it when the daughter was two or three after she had come home from having a bunch of vaccines, um, you know, she noticed that that her daughter changed and she started bringing her to doctors upon doctors upon doctors, trying to get 
whatever help she could. And, and then she spent a lot of time with her too, you know, doing all kinds of exercises with her and, you know, reading books and take, doing everything she could. But the little girl, um, as she was getting older, she was getting, a, well, she would be frustrated. And so she would kind of lash out at people. And, um, and um, you know, it was one thing when she was uh, three and four and five, when she got to be 13, it was, got to be a dangerous situation because um, she would, you know, get angry at her mother and she would uh, hit her mother and she, she started putting her mother in the hospital. She would uh, mm-hmm. um, give her head, brain injuries, head injuries. And so she'd also do it when they were driving. She would hit her mother and, you know, obviously very um, dangerous. So with the mother kept taking her to doctors upon doctors. And in fact, she even got her admitted to this new hospital that was um, particularly set to take care of kids with autism. And um, the girl improved and she was supposed to go to school back when, when she got home. She was supposed to restart again in her school and she would have, um, you know, an assistant sitting next to her and so on. And then at the last minute, the school decided, no, they're not going to take her back. So this was the mo- the mother was at the end of her rope. Um, you know, uh, she, first of all, it was such a disappointment after the girl had spent months at this new hospital and had gotten better. And so um, the mother at her wits end, uh, she was religious and she decided, I think what I'm going to do, the only thing left to do because she couldn't keep her at home. Um, she kept, the daughter kept knocking her out. <laughs> and um, and so she said, uh, so she decided that the best thing would be if they, if if she killed her daughter and herself, if they had a, if they died together and went to heaven, like she had this thought that when they would go to heaven and then they would, she would be cured in heaven. You know, she they wouldn't have these problems. And she really believed this. This wasn't really, a, this wasn't a story. And, um, and so I was called in to be the expert witness and I met with the mother, um, uh, in her, she was in jail and, um, I diagnosed her as having the mother as having PTSD because she was in a war zone. She had been in a war zone for years. And, um, so the mother, how she did it, she took a, their camper, um, or a van and she went out into the woods and she got these two um, like things that you cook on for uh, when you go camping. And she put one in the front for her daughter and one for herself in the back and lit them. And so it was supposed to, she, they were supposed to die from the fumes. But her friend found them. And so they didn't die. And, but then she was put on trial. And, um, and the sad part was, I mean, of course, the whole thing is sad. But the, uh, the sad part was, that her attorneys, now I know you would never do this, but her attorneys um, didn't want to, the family only had so much money and um, they ran out of money. It was a long, you know, case and trial and all that. And so the, the attorneys didn't want to continue to take it to, to an actual trial They because the family didn't have enough money to keep paying them for it. So they convinced the mother to um, do a plea deal. And so the mother ended up, um, she, she took it. She was like, she, 
you know, she was feeling guilty. Um, she she just got convinced to do it. Actually, this was a I brought Dr. Phil to her. This was a, a two-episode Dr. Phil show mm. um, because it was so sad. And um, so the mother ended up so that the uh, I testified at the at the sentencing and the judge talked about how the ju- the attorneys should have been brought her to trial because surely there would be one person at least on the jury who would have not voted for her to be found guilty. And but so in the end, but that's not what happened. <laughs> I mean, you know, the, the um, attorneys convinced her to take this plea deal. She wound up being in jail for about 10 years. and um, and um and the girl you know was the father was left to send the girl kept trying to take care of the the girl was really out of control um she was a big girl and anyhow uh it didn't end well for the whole family there were other children involved in the family um mm. of course it affected them as well and um and it was really rather it was really and so why i was asking you before about you know, it seems that there are more people with with um, with autism and few facilities to take care of them. And so this is it seems. Yeah. Really- yeah. Well, you you have identified a thousand different issues, but let me let me touch upon a few. First of all, your last point about the lack of appropriate facilities very often, I have met with judges, I've met with prosecutors, and they they say, you know, I would like to see so-and-so sent to a facility that has the following. And, and I, I all too frequently have to say, I, I appreciate your openness to, to not sending my client to prison. However, you need to know that a facility like you contemplate does not exist. Or it does exist, but for the following reasons, my client is excluded. Whether it's because of age or kind of offense or the, the sheer cost. Beyond that... Um, if once you begin to work closely with families who have a loved one with a serious mental disability, the, the emotions that that family has are overwhelming. They could feel guilt that they were unable to prevent this this offense from happening. They may be angry at themselves for missing the signs or not being able to interpret the signs. They may feel frustrated because they're powerless to just make this go away because all of their child's life, they've been able to fix situations. And now if their loved one is charged, particularly with a serious crime, they just can't make it go away. Um, Beyond that, they have dealt with 
years, sometimes decades of ostracism by other family members, neighbors, co-workers, what have you, who just do not understand uh, the, the behavior of their loved one. And also you identified the siblings in the family. And make make no mistake, when there is an individual in the family with, with a mental disability, that creates hardship for everyone. And for want of a better phrase, it's the one with the disability who kind of sucks all the energy out of, out of the room that takes the time from, from the parents if in fact both parents stick around. Because as you probably have seen in your practice, sometimes one parent just says, I can't deal with this any longer. I need to leave. Yes. So. Yes, it's a very, very, uh, I would imagine this is one of the hardest parts of law that you could have gone into. <laughs> well, it's, it's, there are layers and layers and layers. And, and sometimes I do feel powerless to change things. Um, but I have heard enough stories. I've heard the same kind of stories to understand the similarities and understand the, the, the problems that our uh, system has. Okay. Well, do you have, can you leave where, we have a minute left. Um, can you leave us with, is there uh, hope? Well, I, I, I think so. I think so. Um, if your loved one has a mental disability and your loved one is ensnared in the criminal justice system, reach out to an attorney who listens, who cares, and who does everything he or she can to make that disability matter and try, um, even if, if the charges can't be dismissed, to do as much damage control as possible in order that your loved one can go on and have as productive a life as possible. Okay, at that will end there. And then also, I, I think... Uh, the fact that there have begun to be some courts specially devoted to them and so on, at least we're going in the right direction. Correct. Well, Elizabeth Kelly, thank you so much for sharing, for, first of all, for doing what you do and for sharing uh, your stories with us. Um, I think we can at least, we, although it's obviously really, really difficult, um, the fact that there are people like you or, or people inspired by you to do what you do um, is certainly something that we can feel hopeful about. Well, thank you. And I appreciate your spotlighting this issue. And thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat. 